0: you're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Tonight, we're going to be in our series in, um, on prayer again in Luke chapter 11. So I'd invite you to turn... Uh, in your hymnals to Luke 11, and as you're turning, go ahead and stand as we, out of respect to the reading of the, the scripture tonight. do want to mention too, and I failed to mention this earlier, it's good to have uh, the Hagans here with us tonight, uh, back there, the Hagans, it's good to have you back with us. They've been, they've been out sick for a few weeks, and, uh, and Mrs. Hagan looks nice and strong here tonight. We're glad to have you back. And thankful to have you here. I just love the Hagens, and thankful for their spirit and testimony. And uh, it's we miss you when you're gone. So thank you for thank for being back. We're thankful for that. Luke chapter 11. We'll read the first four verses. We've been in this series, teach us to pray, uh, for the last couple of months, and uh, we'll be continuing that maybe for a few more weeks. As we kind of wrap some of these things up, it says in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thank you for standing. In honor of the reading of the scripture, you may be seated. You know, we've been in this series the last couple months based on Luke 11. Many many call this the Lord's Prayer, uh, but technically I think... It could be or should be called the model prayer uh, or the disciples' prayer because the disciples were asking the Lord to teach them how to pray and he was giving them some kind of a model on how to do that, some kind of a template or a, a starting point. Personally, I've been I've been blessed by the study because if I can be honest with you as your pastor, I need to learn to pray more effectively. Uh, I would love to pray more passionately. I'd, I'd love to pray more... Biblically, and I, I, you know, prayer is communication; it's communion with God. And there's no more important spiritual activity that a man can have than fellowship with God. But you can't have fellowship uh, or without communication. It's not just time spent; it's conversation spent. And I was thinking about the difference between—and this is always dangerous, or maybe, maybe humorous—but I was thinking about the difference between men and women. And I know a dangerous road to go down. But I was thinking about how women communicate as opposed to how men communicate. And women relate to each other face-to-face. Uh, their time is tip- typically spent in conversation. Men better relate side-by-side. Side side. So men or women like to relate face-to-face. Men relate side-by-side. When, they, when a man spends time, they like to do something together. Men like to go fishing, or they like to go golfing, or if, they're, uh, if they really want punishment, they like to work on a car, and uh, that's bonding. When a man says, I want to talk, let's, he, he's basically saying, let's go shoot something. <laughs> so we relate side by side, men do, by doing something. Women like to look in each other's eyes and bare their souls. They want to express their feelings, and, and that's okay, I'm just... Just, uh, that's not the way men operate, most men. And I, but I do imagine that our communication or our communion with God is a little bit of a balance of both. It's both time spent together, side by side, but it's also conversation spent in fellowship. Don't assume that you can be what you're supposed to be with very little time spent with God. There needs to be quality communication and time. I don't know about you, but, but I have a very difficult time feeling like I have a deep, good conversation with somebody in, in a matter of two or three minutes. It takes a longer amount of time than that. And You say, well, it's not quantity time with God, it's quality. Yes, but I believe you get to the quality time after there's been some quantity time. The truth is, though, we all need to improve in the area of prayer. And if you are a prayer warrior, exactly where you need to be, then at least we need to be careful not to let it slip, because it easily can. So to this point in our series, I think it's been a help to me to go over what prayer means, what it is, how to do it, um, to look at the disciples' request, and and then the points that Christ gives to help guide us. And I mentioned this early on in the series, but Warren Wearsby kind of summarized all the requests into three categories uh, he talks about all three, all, all the requests being under either material and physical provision, or moral and spiritual perfection, or third, divine protection and direction. And he kind of summarizes all the requests. You know, daily bread would be under that physical provision. Uh, divine protection would include Father, deliver us from evil, and and then lead us not into temptation. Well, last week, the last time we met, and then this week, and then. Uh, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, then uh, we will be in this section that's about moral and spiritual perfection, meaning that these are the requests that we pray to help us uh, become more like Christ, to help us in our spiritual walk, to help us to be uh, more like the Lord. And, and uh, this category that we're in, I think is very important in this model prayer. And when Wiersbe uses the word per- perfection, he's not saying that we need to pray that we become perfect because until uh, we are out of this body, we won't be. What he's praying is that we will become mature. Perfection is not just you know, being sinless. Perfection is growing up into the image of Christ. It's being mature. It's, be- it's fulfilling uh, God's call in our lives to be like his son. It's praying toward inward sanctification. Last time we looked at hallowed be thy name, which to me, I mean, when I was approaching that message, I was thinking, I'm not really sure how much I'm going to get out of this one. You know, okay, we need to pray that God's name is hallowed or treated reverently. I I believe that. but, But what I wasn't realizing before I did that study was how much that prayer request begins to align us for the rest of the prayer requests. You know, that prayer request, it certainly needs to be prayed. God's name needs to be hallowed. We live in a culture where you can't be anywhere without hearing God's name be treated disrespectfully. I mean, in and, and, and the most innocent-seeming uh, places, I mean, you, even on, on television, on a television show that you think would be innocent enough, like a, a home, on home and garden television when they have a, a, a show where they're remodeling a house or renovating a house, and it's like when they have the big reveal, what's everyone's go-to phrase? I mean, it's that God's name is used to express anger. It's used to express surprise. It's used to express happiness. It's used to express just in shock factor. It's just thrown out there all the time. And we need, as God's people, because no one else is praying that God's name will be hallowed, we need to pray that God's name is hallowed. That God's name is respected and that God's name is reverenced, but it doesn't just impact what others are doing with God's name. It also, as we pray, that God's name is hallowed, it impacts us. It aligns us to think about God correctly he is absolutely holy, and when we pray and consider how his, how his name deserves to be treated, it's like, and I use the illustration, when you first buy a printer, and this was on my mind because I had just bought a printer a few weeks ago, and you have to send those alignment pages through the printer so that it'll print out straight, and it'll, it'll print correctly, and, and to me, this first request, God, that God's name is hallowed, aligns us it gets us to think about how God's name should be holy. And as we consider God's holiness, it puts us in alignment for the rest of the prayer requests. Because we're thinking correctly about God. He is holy. His name deserves to be treated correctly. And, and when we think about it, it drives us to our knees so that then we can be open to whatever else these other prayer requests, uh, that whatever else the prayer model demands. So when you consider that God is high and holy, just like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, and we could go there and maybe we will, I'll, I'll decide when we get there, but we can't help but properly and spiritually be aligned to desire the right things in our relationship with God when we view Him correctly. And I believe that that's the first thing that needs to happen with this order of the model prayer. Our prayer for God to be respected as He deserves puts us in an alignment. It puts us in a position to pray that his kingdom will come and that his will will be done. So we're focusing more on thy kingdom come tonight, but I do find it interesting that the alignment illustration seems to come so clearly into focus here. The Lord says, our, again, our first petition should be that God's name would be hallowed or reverenced, and then it leads us to these humble requests about God's kingdom and God's will, and we won't turn there, but if we were to turn to Isaiah 6, then we read in those first few verses that he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and the, this, the, the, the angels were shouting, and holy, 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 and, and they, were, they were saying, your name is holy, your name is hallowed, it should be holy, and it is set apart and respected. And then we could see over there in Isaiah 6 how Isaiah's response was that God's holiness ...caused him to see himself for who he truly was. It caused him to see himself as a sinner. There was no pride, there was no self-promotion. In that moment, after Isaiah saw God's holiness... ...Isaiah was not thinking, let my kingdom come. He was not thinking, let my will be done. He was not thinking, make sure everybody forgives me... ...because I don't need to forgive anybody else. No, it'll put him in a position to see himself for what he really is. God's holiness does that for us. When we get a glimpse of God's holiness, it aligns us so that our prayer requests are correct. And if you'll notice um, over there, and again, we won't turn there, but if you read it, you'll see that it put him in the frame of mind to be open to whatever God asked of him because after he saw God's holiness and after he then was humbled, then he said, here am I, Lord, send me. So God's holiness humbles us, and then it puts us in a position where we want nothing except for what God wants. So God then gives Isaiah the instruction to go and give a message from God to the people. And and Isaiah didn't say, why? Why do you want me to do that? No, he had already got a glimpse of God. He already knew about God's holiness. He knew who God was. He did not ask why. He said, Lord, how long? He wasn't asking, I don't know why you want me to do this. It's silly. They're not going to listen. God even told him over there in Isaiah 6, they're not going to listen. Let me be an encouragement to you, Isaiah. You're going to go preach and they're not going to listen. Now he said, they're not going to listen, but I want you to preach until you can no longer preach. I want you to preach as long as it takes until you can't do it anymore. That's the only requirement I have. Isaiah basically, or God said, until you can't tell them. They won't listen, but the point is, Isaiah, I'm giving you a job that you represent me to the people, no matter the outcome. And we're told, if you read Isaiah, Isaiah fulfilled the, his, that duty well. But once it was only, though, once he was aligned by God's holiness. And once he was aligned by God's holiness, once he got a glimpse for who God is, he was willing to do whatever God asked of him. His view of God put him in a position To be willing and happy to do whatever his Holy Father asked him to do. And I go through that because the pattern is in Luke 11 too. Father, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There's the alignment. Okay, now Lord, thy kingdom come, whatever you want. Thy will be done, whatever your will is. Whatever it is that you ask of me, just like Isaiah after seeing God's holiness then we will be in alignment to accept whatever that God asks us to do. Amen. And I bring that up because I don't, want to, I don't want to overlook how important that first petition is. Yes, he starts with our Father, which art in heaven. But when he says, hallowed be thy name, a lot of people would just assume that means that, you know, just, you know, praying, you know, we're, we're lifting up God's name. God, your name is holy. No, God, may your name be holy. It's a petition. Don't skip that first petition. Don't, don't start your prayer without considering who God is. Worship him. Praise him. Can, I mean, in my mind, when I pray, if I want to pray the right way and align myself, I mean, inevitably, I start going through the Old Testament stories of God. And, and not to be too personal tonight, but I say things like, God, when, you, when, you, when you've displayed your power um, at the Red Sea crossing... I wish I could have been there, Lord. What a mighty act. God, when you had the children of Israel walk around the walls of Jericho and just the blow, the trumpets, and the walls came down and you preserved your people, God, thank you. What a mighty act. I mean, I go through those things and I just remind myself. My best prayer time is when I remind myself and I take the time to remind myself of who God is. Just how holy he is and how, how perfect and how powerful he is. And, and if we skip this part, then the rest of this is just lip service, I believe. And that's why I want to refocus on that tonight before we get into the next part. God's holiness aligns us. So then the next two or the next few, really, the next two specifically deal with how God's glory is manifested and how God's will is done. And So I want to deal with the part of Christ's model prayer for the disciples where he says, thy kingdom come. Let me first say that this request is the smallest of all. It's three words, thy kingdom come. It's the shortest of all the requests, but it's probably the most extensive, the most exhaustive, and the, and the hardest to explain in you know, the next 20, 25 minutes. So uh, there's a lot I'm going to miss, and I, I know you'll probably have some things that you think of that I don't think of. There's so much to cover, but I want to just summarize this to, that in a way that I think could be help. Thy kingdom come. So, obviously, this is referring to God's kingdom. Uh, God's sovereign rule as king can be understood in, in two ways. And the, be, the best way that I could summarize these would be in a... He, is a universal, he has a universal kingdom, and then he has a redemptive kingdom. So, there's two areas of his rule and reign... The universal kingdom, this is that God has absolute dominion over all creatures and all things. First Chronicles 29 says, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. What a great verse. Uh, First Chronicles twenty nine, eleven. Well, I don't necessarily believe that's the kingdom we are to pray for, according to Jesus Christ's model here, because even though others like Satan and then even earthly rulers have influence and reign over the kingdom here on earth, God's rule and power over the universal kingdom already exists. He already reigns. He gives power only as he allows it. I mean, he could stop Satan's influence If he chose to, he allows Satan to have influence. God already reigns universally. So we must assume then that the kingdom we are to be praying for isn't just the general universal kingdom of God's dominion, but the more specific kingdom of God's redemptive work. So what does that mean? Well, this kingdom is is not something you're a part of by just being born. This kingdom that is spiritual and redemptive is entered into when one is born again. And we're told in John 3, when Jesus Christ was talking to Nicodemus, he said, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So there's something about being born again that puts you into the kingdom of God. You're not just naturally um, a citizen of this kingdom. You have to be saved. And I think we can understand that in here. In this room tonight, Luke 17, 20 and 21, um, about Christ, it says, when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So this isn't a physical kingdom. It's, it's different than any kingdom that you and I think about. This is the one that you are born again into. It's a spiritual kingdom, and it is within people that have been redeemed. I know that's a mouthful, but I'm just trying to help us understand this isn't just referring to a physical kingdom like you and I think of. When we think of a kingdom, we think of a king. We think of a king literally ruling over a piece of ground and ruling over a certain group of people, a literal group of people. Well, the Jews... Uh, here there in Luke 17, in, 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 in all the Gospels, the Jews were expecting that kind of king and kingdom when the Messiah came. They were expecting Jesus Christ to come and wipe out the Romans and establish a kingdom and rule and reign and restore everything. They expected the Messiah to come physically wipe out the enemies of God and establish that visible rulership, establishing the kingdom on earth. But the problem was they were better at rejecting God as their king than they were at submitting to God. The Jews struggled with being obedient, and they were not good subjects to their king. In 1 Samuel 8, they came and they basically said to Samuel, we want a human king to rule over us like all the other nations. And what's interesting is to that point in Israel's history, Israel had one king, and his name was Jehovah. Jehovah. God was their king. God ruled and reigned in a perfect way, and yet still they rejected God. God told Samuel there in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, you should go back and read it. It says, they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And then even then, in that same area of, of scripture, God warned him and said this, you having a king is not going to be the answer to all your problems. You having a king will not be as good as you think it's going to be. He will take advantage of you. He'll put you into service. It won't end up like you think it's going to end up, not just with Saul, but with all the kings. And it was very true that, sure enough, God knew what he was talking about. King after king led Israel in unrighteous ways. And they were usually miserable because no one rules like God rules. Friends, tonight, God is the best king. And for us to submit to any other ruler is to settle for far less than what God ever intended. It takes us out of a place of blessing and and joy and happiness and puts us in a place of misery. And we see the Jews do this. When When Christ came, they did the same thing. He came and I believe he legitimately offered the kingdom to the Jews if they would have submitted to him, but they could not do it. So they rejected him again, and it sealed thousands more years of misery until we know that someday he establishes, he returns and establishes an earthly kingdom uh, after the tribulation. So what does this have to do with us? The kingdom. Well, the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that's only entered into when one receives salvation. And God desires that everyone become a part of this kingdom, but not everyone has yet. Thus the come apart, thy kingdom come. There's a plan for for God's kingdom to be expanded. And so we are to pray that God's kingdom is advanced. We are to pray that God's reign is spread in the hearts of every sinner. We are to pray that God's kingdom would find more willing subjects. What Christ is doing by including this in the model prayer is making the disciples and us participants in his mission to spread the reign of God. The more subjects that submit to the reign of this holy king, the more glory the king gets. This is one major focus of this part of the prayer. Look over in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. This is something I found interesting as I was studying some of this out. Acts chapter 1. This is right before Jesus Christ ascends uh, into heaven after he's been crucified. He's appeared to that first, uh, the first church there in Jerusalem. It says in verse 1, Acts 1, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. I love that phrase there, by the way. Being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So notice there, he taught them about the kingdom. After he died and then was buried and then rose again, he teaches them about the kingdom for 40 days. Because that's the era into which they're about to step, the kingdom of God. They're, they're advancing that work. It says then, in verse 4, "...and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore, look, verse 6, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel?" So here we are, here's his apostles and he's talking about the kingdom of God and what are they still asking about? Are, God, are you, is it time? Now are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They still. They can't get out of their mind that this is, that's not the kind of kingdom he's talking about. He's not telling them, yes, it's time, I'm going to, I'm going to rise up I'll be the Messiah. I will set up my, my kingdom here in Israel and, and everything's gonna be great. They're like, well, God, when's that gonna happen? When's it gonna happen? And, he said, and he's been telling them about the kingdom of God and he's been teaching them these things and he almost, it's, I, can't, I can't imagine, I don't know exactly what he did, but maybe he's just like, oh, you're asking about the kingdom again. That's not what I'm, my point. Look at verse seven, he says, and he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So, I mean, what is that connection? Well, basically, Jesus Christ is saying, you, you, you need to be about the work of the kingdom of God. And the work of the kingdom of God is advancing the kingdom of God. And you advance the kingdom of God through missions. You advance the kingdom of God through witnessing. So God's people are to be primarily in concern with the kingdom of God and its increase. Its advancement. Folks, that is our responsibility right now. The kingdom of God, we are to be passionately working toward its advancement. Unfortunately, though, you say, well, that's easy, but so what now? Well, there are a lot of obstacles. And the least of which would, isn't, there's a lot of them, but not the least of which, that, the heart of every man. Meaning that the kingdom of God, we should be advancing it, we should be concerned about it, but there's a, there's a problem in every man that doesn't like to submit to a king. We don't like to submit to the kingdom. Men are born to follow their own dreams and plans. They are taught from this early age that they're the rulers of their own destiny. You know, America was founded on the idea, in case you think this is, should be easy for us to overcome, we were founded on the idea that we don't want a king. Think about that. We were founded on the idea as a nation, we don't want some king telling us what to do because they had been underneath a, a tyrant king and a king that wouldn't give them religious freedom. So that's always kind of been our M.O. I read this, uh, an illustration of an evangelist, an English preacher I should say, named John Guest. And in the late 1960s, he came to America and he was in the Philadelphia area and he would come to preach and and he was visiting an antique store in the Philadelphia area and it was specialized in Americana. Now, those of you that know about decorations, I'll let you explain Americana. It's some kind of decoration style and anything that has to do with being an American, I guess. But while he was looking in this antique store, he couldn't help but notice certain signs that seemed to convey the spirit of the Americans. And these were signs like, don't tread on me. Or no taxation without representation, which probably could get a big amen from you if I preached on that one. But the one that stood out to John Guest that day was the one that said, we serve no sovereign here. Because in the early days of America, that was our M.O. We're here because we don't want a king. We don't want someone telling us what to do. And he later admitted, he said, how can I possibly preach the kingdom of God to people who have a profound aversion to sovereignty? R.C. Sproul said in a book called Following Christ, he said, the concept of lordship invested in one individual is repugnant to the American tradition. Yet this is the boldness of the claim of the New Testament for Jesus, that absolute sovereign authority and imperial power are vested in Christ. So when you start to wonder why people don't want to submit to a king, hey, our country was founded on that idea. Our sin nature and our culture's message make it difficult to submit to anybody these days. Especially when in our culture, individualism has become the highest virtue. Everyone says what I believe is the most important thing. Whether or not it's true, whether or not it's significant. I mean, we have uh, senators and people in, in politics like AOC. And she's spouting off things that aren't even true. And people are flocking to her and yet she's not even speaking truth. That's the highest virtue in our country, individualism. And if we as Americans are going to make a dent in our country for the kingdom of God, that's what we're having to fight against. Salvation is a choice that equals self-denial. No wonder people don't want to hear it. Because if you go and you knock on a door and you say, yes, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. He's the only way to heaven. Then no one wants to hear that. For a person to get saved, then they must admit that they have been wrong. And Jesus Christ is right, and you are right, and the Bible is right. And they must admit humbly that the answer to their eternity lies outside their own ability. It lies outside their own knowledge. That's the culture. That's the country we live in. And it's not just human nature. I think it runs even deeper because it's American culture. But understand, they're not the only ones struggling with it. At salvation, you entered the kingdom of God. You no longer own you. 1 Corinthians 6 says, What know ye not? That your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Uh, Eastside Baptist Church member, you are part of the kingdom. You don't own you, God does. He is your king, and if he is our king and we are his subjects, then we are underneath his rule. The life of a disciple that is part of the kingdom of God is a life of self-denial. Whether or not I want to hear that, whether or not you want to hear that, Jesus Christ said in Mark 8, and when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the life of a disciple. That's your life as a member of the kingdom of God. And I believe the biggest hindrance to the prayer, thy kingdom come, is not that the king won't take initiative or do what he's supposed to do. It's not that those that aren't in the kingdom in the neighborhoods around us, it's not that they just won't submit to his reign. I believe that the biggest hindrance is that those that are citizens of his sovereign rule do not fully surrender to his complete sovereignty in their own lives. I believe that's the biggest hindrance to the kingdom of God. Sure, we should pray for the advancement of his kingdom. We should pray that those that are unsaved will be brought into the kingdom. But we should also pray that God's kingdom is evident, if it's in us, like he says it is, that God's kingdom is evident in the lives of us, his subjects. See, we must live in such a way that our lives reflect our citizenship. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Unfortunately, we live in a My Kingdom culture. That I am here to reflect myself. I'm here to reflect my values. I'm here to reflect my own virtues and my own ideas. And my ideas are better than everyone else's because they're mine. And you have to take it for what it is. It's my idea. It's my value. It's my moral. It's my gender. Whatever it is that I want to be, I get to be it. Because it is a my kingdom culture. And it's not just... A My Kingdom culture out there, we are part of this culture. We've been raised in it. We have a sin nature. We've been told all of our lives, this is the way you operate. And we too have a tendency to be a My Kingdom kind of people if we're not careful. We want things our our way. We want things to be done the way we want them. We have this area. This is My Kingdom. Don't touch it. Don't step on it. We have to be careful, Eastside Baptist Church, to not reflect the culture in here more than we reflect the kingdom. Because we can get that way. And I'm not saying we as a church. I'm saying God's people in general can be a my kingdom kind of people. Besides prayer, the most important factor in God's kingdom coming is how submissive the king's subjects are to the king's priorities. And it comes down to Matthew 6.33, Matthew which I believe we heard even last week. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. See, our life's first priority is in, is in heaven. It's his kingdom. And that means that we live seeking to advance his kingdom above every other possibility of, or priority in life. So my question tonight is this. Is your life being lived in such a way that it would help God's kingdom come? Sure, we should pray for it. We absolutely should. But if the king's subjects aren't living to advance his kingdom, how do you think that's going to happen? Now, Obviously, this means our priority of spreading the, the message of the kingdom should rise to the top. If we believe this and... And again, I want you to attach Acts chapter 1. We quote 1 8 all the time, but ye shall be witnesses. Well, Jesus, they were asking about the kingdom, and God said, No, the kingdom work is to go tell people, go witness. That's our responsibility. So that obviously needs to rise to the top, and we need to make that a priority. No, it's been preached a lot, about, about a lot, I should say, recently. But if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, I believe it will be evident in your life and how you spread the message of the kingdom. And it doesn't mean that, oh, you're not here on Thursday night at 6.30, you're, you're obviously you know, not right with God. No, I mean on a daily basis. On a daily basis. Does your life reflect that the kingdom of God is your priority and that the advancement of the message of the kingdom is something that you believe in? We need to be sure if, we're going to pre- if I'm going to preach that thy kingdom come and, and we're going to say we believe in God's kingdom and yet we never take the time to advance the kingdom then I don't believe that we are reflecting God's priorities in our life. But it's not just then advancing the message. He said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I do truly believe the biggest hindrance to the advancement of the kingdom is that the people, the subjects of God's kingdom don't reflect his righteousness in their daily lives. It's not just about advancing the kingdom. Are we living in a way that aligns with his righteousness? The message is God's kingdom is the best place to live. It's the most, con- it's the most content citizenship. You've got to come live there. There's no better place to be than under the subjection to this holy king. And we can and we should give out that message with zeal. But if we give out that message but don't live out that message, how much do you think it will advance the kingdom? Are you living for God's kingdom or yours? Do you reflect God's kingdom or your own? Are you praying for God's kingdom to come? Do you pray for souls? Do you pray for God's people to surrender to his priorities? More personal, are you surrendered yourself to God's priorities? What gets your time? To what do you give the most energy? To what do you give the most of your money? What do your actions say that you love the most? How involved are you in serving in God's kingdom? These are all good questions. These are all questions that we need to ask ourselves to make sure that we are living in such a way that we reflect a kingdom and not the culture. That we reflect God's kingdom, not my kingdom. That we're not protective or possessive or saying, well, you know, this is my area, nobody can infringe on this, or, or you know, uh, we can't work together with somebody else in this area because this is my spot. No, that's not how Jesus Christ did it. His, his, the work of Christ was done as a team effort, and it's about God's glory, it's about God's kingdom. And we need to be careful that we're reflecting that mentality even in how we serve together. There's a lot here like I said. It's the shortest request, but it I mean it may it require the longest explanation. And I know I haven't done it like it probably should have been done tonight, but I want to just ask you to reflect on how your life is reflecting God's kingdom. Is, are your interactions reflective of his kingdom or the culture you live in? Are you protective of the things that are my kingdom? Are you working and serving for his kingdom? Uh, is, are, is your effort to reach souls? Is that, is that evidence that you believe God's advancing kingdom is really important? Or are you just kind of letting other people do that part? A lot of directions to take it. And I'm not even sure that I took it the right one tonight, but I hope it'll help us maybe clear up when we do pray that God's kingdom come, that we'll be praying for souls, the advancement of God's kingdom, and then second, that our lives would reflect God's kingdom. Let's pray.